Hey, it's Simon. As we approach Christmas, a lot of people are struggling with the effect of this pandemic on their health. It reminds me again that the ambition of this podcast is not to draw comparison with other people's adversity and reflect that life is not so bad after all, but to bring some light and some insight about how we, as human beings, can cope better with the difficult challenges we all face in our life. In this episode 24 of Turning the Tables, we share the story of my guest, actor, singing coach and storyteller, Renu Aurora's near-death experience. So I put my foot on the edge of the pavement slightly onto the road and as I did, a bus came in, caught the edge of my, the edge of my boot, literally the edge, and as it did, it dragged my foot and lower leg under the wheel. So I toppled over and my leg was twisted under the wheel of the bus and it stopped on me. I was now on the floor. And that's the point where I had my, I suppose my consciousness had jumped up, ejected my body and I could see my um, body underneath the wheel of this bus. I suppose people would call it a near-death experience at the time. The novelist Ernest Hemingway is a famous example of someone who recounted a story of a near-death experience. During World War I, Hemingway was wounded by shrapnel while fighting on the banks of the river Piave near Fossalata, Italy, on a fateful night in 1918. He describes how a big Austrian trench mortar bomb of the type that used to be called Ashcans exploded in the darkness very close to him. He recounted, I died then. I felt my soul or something coming right out of my body, like you pulled a silk handkerchief out of a pocket by one corner. It flew around and then came back and went in again, and I wasn't dead anymore. Near-death experiences are a well-documented phenomena where people describe an out-of-body experience when faced with impending death, often with profound effects on that person's outlook on life. For someone who hasn't had a near-death experience, that's a pretty difficult concept to get a hold of. Renu was trained at the Central School of Acting and Drama and had a thriving career in the arts, including working as a singing teacher, a musical director and role-playing actor in the NHS. She also worked as a theatrical director at venues like the Soho Theatre. Renu had faced adversity earlier in her career when she suffered with ME, which she happily recovered from. Her near-death experience happened when she was tragically pulled under a London bus. Our conversation started with Renu talking about the events leading up to the accident. Tell us about the events leading up to your accident. So obviously it sounds like you were, you know, enjoying your career. You'd obviously been through ME. Mm. You know, every, everything was moving in the right direction for you. Mm-hmm. What happened next? So um, I had actually had glandular fever um, for about sort of on and off for about a year or so before the accident, which I'd had a few times in my life. And this was the third time that I'd had it. Um, oh, dear. Yes. On top of ME. <laughs> on top of ME, exactly. Um, 
the first time actually just to go back for a second I was um doing a I was acting coach I was acting coach on a show at the Alcola Theatre in Dalston um on a very interesting topical show and it was really great um high pressured as all these shows can be and um I remember feeling feeling unwell during the show with some kind of virusy fluy type thing and you know just kind of working through it and just kind of going oh you know I'll be fine and I think we had a few days off over Christmas um and I went to Wales to stay with family over Christmas and I just completely crashed and I obviously had to finish the show and I wanted to finish the show because I was acting coach on the show I had a big responsibility in the show and um I felt really unwell but it took a a doctor in Wales, where I was staying for those few days, to say, I think you've got glandular fever. This is not a simple throat infection. And I just went, oh, not again. Oh, no, that was the first time. Yeah, that was the first time. And um, many years ago, and I, I probably was unwell for about six months at that point. Um, I did manage to work in, in the middle, of, you know, sort of within it after a kind of a month or so of prolonged rest. Um, and I've had it. The third time I'd had it was about sort of a year and a, a year and a half before the accident. Um, and I was actually working, working through it um, for most of it. I, I think I'd had a month or two of rest again and worked through it because I had to and I wanted to. Um, and I was having a, I remember I, the, the night before the accident on the 28th of March, I was, I was sitting in a, in a restaurant with a friend. And I just said, I'm so tired. And he said, yeah. And I was in tears. I said, I'm so tired. He said, yeah, I know. I know. I mean, you've been through such a difficult time and you've worked through it. And that's great. But you haven't given yourself a chance to rest. And it's great that you love what you do. And it's all great. But you need to give yourself a chance to rest. And I went, I know. He said, can you, can you, can you take a few months off? And I went, yeah, I could. And he said, well, why don't you, starting now, you know, take a, take a couple of months off or, you know, even just a few weeks off, just to kind of give yourself a chance to rest and recoup, you know, after being unwell. And I went, you know, you're right. And it was one of those conversations which just kind of turned a switch, turned a switch in my in my head. And I went, okay. I was doing a job the following day and I said, okay, so tomorrow's going to be the last one. And the following day, coming home from work, I was hit by a bus. And um, (laughs) that same friend came to visit me in my home two weeks later and I remember him saying something like, that's a hell of a way to get your rest. (laughs) I mean, it's an extraordinary coincidence. It is, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, for people who who obviously don't know what happened, it was, sounds like a pretty horrific experience. It was huge. Do you want to just... Sure, so... Give people a, a sort of picture of what actually happened. Sure, so I was coming home from the day of work... I was planning to cook um, a curry with a, a close friend of mine that used to be my housemate that night. Um, and she'd, um, she was then, li- then living across the road from me because she'd got married. So she was living with her husband across the road. So she said, let's still have our evening. Um, you know, I said, I'm, I'm actually feeling really tired. And she went, don't worry, you know, I can help you make the food and we can still just have a relaxing evening on the sofa. And I said, great, that's fine then. Um, and I'd come home and my phone had lost its battery. So I texted her and I'd said, you know, give me sort of 
10 minutes, I'm going to go in the sh- to the shop because we've got a shop nearby to buy the ingredients and the chilies and things. And, you know, give me a few minutes. And um, I said, I've got no battery, so I'll keep the phone in the house. But, um, you know, be at, be, be at the door in about sort of 15, 20 minutes or so. She went, yeah, great, fine. So um, I walked to the shop and I've been in this area in North London for sort of, at this point I've been here for about sort of five or six years. So I knew the area quite well and I know the shop well because I go there most days for my for my grocery shopping. And um, it's always pretty empty. And on this day, the queue was extending outside the shop, literally. And I just thought, what's going on? It's not a Jewish holiday. We live in a Jewish area. It's not, it's not Christmas, it's not another, what is coming on? So I had my basket in my hand thinking, my friend's going to be at my door buzzing and get concerned that I'm not answering the door. So um, I got my basket and I kind of walked to the walked to the, the till and I just put the basket on the till and I said, I'm going to keep this here, give me five minutes, I'll be back. And they all know me in the shop, so they were like, yep, that's totally fine. So um I walked out and it was six o'clock roughly in the evening. So it was still pretty light, you know. I kind of, I walked out thinking, like, we live on a, a main road and it's quite a long road. So I knew that I could, I would have been able to see her coming towards me and she would have been able to see my purple jumper. Um, but at this point, I couldn't see her. So I walked towards the edge of the pavement and there was a bus stop opposite where I was, well, next to where I was actually. Um, and I still couldn't see her. So I thought, where, where is she? This is really weird. So I put my foot on the edge of the pavement, slightly onto the road. And as I did, a bus came in. And my arm was still in the air trying to wave to her. The bus came in, caught the edge of my the edge of my boot, literally the edge. And as it did, it dragged my foot and lower leg under the wheel. So I toppled over and my leg was twisted under the wheel of the bus. Um, and it stopped on me. So it was really horrific really horrific um and you know with anything that 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 takes you out of yourself that's kind of a great big trauma and I've heard this having read accounts of people who've been you know shot at in war zones so it takes the brain a while to catch up so in my head I was still standing up with my arm in the air I didn't quite realize that I was now on the floor. And that's the point where I had my, I suppose my consciousness had jumped up, ejected my body, and I could see my um, body underneath the wheel of this bus. I I suppose people would call it a near-death experience at the time. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, it's huge. It was really huge. So you were obviously rushed to hospital and... Yeah, so... um, All the... All the drama associated with that. Yes, yes. I mean, for um, various reasons, I didn't get the uh, medical treatment that I needed for five weeks down the line because I was um, uh, discharged as having no injuries. But um, I have had a very crushed foot. (laughs) So um, I actually came back to my flat that night thinking I was fine and I'd be walking within 10 days. Um, properly walking within 10 days. I haven't properly walked since. Yeah, so um, the following morning I woke up and my my, my foot, I have size three, fairly small feet, and my foot was easily a size six, easily. You know, it, 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 it doubled in size. I've never experienced so much pain in my life. Um, 
and it transpired when I did get the scans I needed five weeks later that I had around eight bones that were in several pieces each. The main ligament that, that, that makes up the arch ligament that keeps the arch of the foot in place had completely severed, which meant that some of those bones had splayed, so they were dislocated as well. So my foot was essentially crushed to pieces. But it's shocking that I don't understand how they wouldn't have x-rayed you they, in the first they place. They did, but missed everything. Crying. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And the doctors that saw that saw me then later on and saw the initial x-rays went, this is this foot is absolutely crushed. How how did they this doesn't make any sense. It's not one tiny hairline fractures, multiple fractures in several places, plus locations, plus ligaments, you know, the, a, a complete ruptured ligament. Uh, and was yeah. there um, was that ever investigated? It's currently being right. Um, so I can't really say too much about that because it's currently no, being. no, no. Of course. Um, um, I mean, once they'd established what you actually had done, what what then happened? So then, which is one of the reasons why that I have a disability now, because then it was then too late to operate. So my my orthopedic consultant said to me, because by this point my parents were so worried you know, that I got this massive injury that wasn't being treated and I kept going back to hospital and kept getting wrong diagnoses of, you know, all sorts of things were flying about, which none of, none of them were correct and was making the situation worse. And um, um, so then I, my parents said, well, let, let, me, let me come, let us come to London and we can drive you to Wales and you can get treated here. So, um, so I, we, my parents then kindly paid for me to have a private scan the same night as we'd driven back and um, the results came back and my orthopaedic surgeon said to me, he said, if I'd seen you on that first day, you'd have been straight in theatre and I would have pinned the whole foot. Now I kind of can't. Um, It doesn't make any sense to you because it could easily make things much worse, both in the short term and in the long term. So I didn't end up having the operation that could potentially have saved my foot and I could need a similar operation but a more serious one in time because of how bad my foot actually is. So it was it was a complete calamity. It was a complete mess. Terrible. Complete mess. And and how has it left you? I mean what how does it inhibit you now? So I can't stand up on the stage to sing or to act anymore. Um I need crutches to walk. I mean I, I'm okay to hobble around the house, but I need crutches. Um, when I'm out and about, I have a walking boot, I have a foot brace to wear um, kind of in the house, you know, when I'm resting, when I'm not kind of walking or using it. So um, yeah. it's very different, very, very different. There are so many things I can't yes. do, you know, housework and things, cooking is difficult. Um, anything yes. that involves being up and lifting things is, of course, difficult. Yes. Uh, weather changes make it worse. This, you know, so it's, it's, um, it's massively impacted how I live my life, massively so. Yes. So I've had to kind of reinvent myself as a sit-down artist and the, the, the Burgundy book, which is a series of podcasts that I'm, I'll be running myself around the accident and the NDE and the journey that's followed. Artistic podcasts coming out in a few months will be, you know, one of the kind of projects back as a, as a sit-down artist because I can't do the things that I used to do, a lot of those things. Um, so I've had to kind of reevaluate everything, literally everything, um, and not just that, you know, having having um, had a massive trauma, which obviously left me hugely traumatised, having gone through the emotional journey, 
the spiritual journey, having had an NDE, and and so I felt like in that in the in the space where I where I could see my body when I was you know floating up, I felt like I in some ways transcended this world. And so you know one can't come back and just kind of live in the same way that things were before because my view of life was so altered. Not only was I traumatized, but my view of life was so very altered by having the NDE as well, plus having you know, for, for the first kind of couple of years or so, like intense pain on a daily basis. I mean, it's much calmer now. Um, it still massively affects my life, but I'm not in as much kind of daily pain as I was before. Intense pain, you know, and even in those first five weeks before the the the, um, the diagnosis had actually happened, because the initial diagnosis was, you know, not correct and they thought it was just soft tissue, I wasn't given the kind of morphine-type painkillers that I was then given after five weeks. And obviously, kind of Nurofen wasn't touching the surface because my foot, my foot was crushed. So I spent five weeks just going, oh, my God, how do I get through this pain? I was crying for most of the day for those first five weeks because I'd never experienced, I never thought it possible to experience that level of pain in one part of your body. I mean, it was like my brain had moved into my foot. You know, all I could do was literally sit or lie on the sofa with my leg with my leg elevated, and and because there was was damage all over the foot, the sole, the back, the heel, the toes, the, the middle of the foot into my ankle, into the upper part of my leg, there was no damage there too. Because there was so much pain and so much damage throughout my limb, no position helped. So I would I would I would be in a position with my foot on the softest of my cushions. And every few moments, the pain would become so intense that all I could do was change position. And that cycle would last, would, would kind of go all over again. I'd wait till I could bear the pain no more and then change position. And that's all I did for five weeks. All I did. So how have you coped with that emotionally and mentally? Well, it's been very, very difficult. Um, so my saving grace throughout all of this has been my spiritual journey and the near-death experience. You know, one of the one of the things that um, when I was floating above my body and I could see my body under the bus, one of the things that I remember was that I heard these messages, and I know it might sound a bit strange and a bit woo-woo, but I heard these messages around love, and one of them was like, you know, love is all there is. I really felt like my um, my arm span, my wingspan was like meters and meters and meters and meters and meters wide. I felt like I was everyone and everything and I was filled up to the brim with this universal sense of love that wasn't a love that could just kind of go if I gave, it wasn't a human love. It felt like it was much, 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 much deeper. Like it could never be, never be depleted. And I remember hearing this message from like, you know, the right hand side of me, above me, that love is all there is. And you need to, you need to fill up fill up the world with love and you need to give love and that is that is all there is and that was my saving grace that that has been my saving grace I mean the NDE was phenomenal I mean so much happened in that space which I'll go into a bit later on but so both life-altering and life-affirming and it took me a very long time to to come back from that I felt like I was still there for a very long time and actually I wanted to be back there because it felt so peaceful you know, coming back into the, my physical reality was unimaginably difficult and painful. 
in every sense, you know, both in terms of the trauma, in terms of how much I felt like my psyche had broken, you know, after the trauma, how much my world had turned upside down, how much physical pain I was in, how much emotional pain I was in. I didn't want to be here. I just wanted to be back in that space. And and actually experiencing that place and experiencing how peaceful and loving and warm and happy I'd felt, I just thought, I see the other side. Why would I want to be back here with a crushed foot? <laughs> um, it was really, really difficult. And what helped me was my both the, the spiritual journey and the fact that I'm an artist, that I, I've now come to be immeasurably grateful for so much, so much. Because obviously my own um, artistic project, the, the, my own podcast series that will be coming out soon, is my artistic response to it. Because I, I, after the accident, I read hundreds of books on trauma, on NDEs, on PTSD, on veterans that come back after, you know, and had experienced um, this huge, great big one-off trauma, which was really interesting because within their words, I found a sense of home and hope. But I also wanted to find being an artist, being an artist, an artistic response to a trauma that I could access from my home because I couldn't go anywhere. That was nuanced. That was fairly reflective and not too overwhelming for my battered senses. And I couldn't find anything. That's not to say it didn't exist. I just maybe I wasn't looking hard enough. But I couldn't, I couldn't find anything that I could feel a sense of, that I could immerse my spirit in, that would nourish my spirit. So about sort of a year and a half after the accident, I just thought, okay. I'm going to make the response that I wanted. So the Burgundy book, which is my own artistic response to the, the accident, is that response. The, the podcast series that's coming out, that will be that response. So having that, I feel so grateful because it's, it gave me a sense of purpose and it gave me a sense of, okay, so this is, this is part of my work going forward. This is a lot of my work going forward now is telling the story sharing the story with my own skills, my own medium, you know, acting, singing, storytelling, you know, the skills that I had spent so long developing within my career in the theatre. As you reflect back on the two, you know, significant adversities you've had in your life, and obviously the, the most recent one is the most significant, what, what do you think it's taught you? What have you learned through that? Oh, a huge amount. It's, it's fundamentally especially the accident, because of the near-death experience that I had, it, it fundamentally altered my view of time. It's felt fundamentally altered how I, how I live my life, how I relate to myself, how I relate to other people. My well of empathy for other people has, I feel, hugely deepened. I've always been empathic, but more so since the accident, I feel like it's literally just... So, so vastly deepened and expanded. Uh, when people have near-death experiences, one of the things they report um, is that they experience a sense of timelessness, that the, the, the sense of time in that other realm is very different to our linear sense of time that we experience here on the earth. And so I experience this sense of there's no time, there really is no time. So I have a very different view of time, so I live my life very differently. 
um, if that makes sense. That's one of the things. Yes. yes. Has it changed your priorities as about what's important yes. to you in life? Yes. Yes. Um, so one of one of the Burgundy book is a series of podcasts around. I mean, just because it does actually relate to your question. Um, different facets of the accident. Little, I tell stories of different facets of the accident, ranging from the very profound in terms of, you know, the specifics and some of the adjustments I've had to make and and how my internal world completely shifted right through to the very mundane. So, for example, something as every day, like going to a coffee shop to um, to buy a cup of coffee and just sit there watching the world go by might seem like such a normal thing to do, but when you've had a trauma, it can mean so much more. So actually, my experience of some of those everyday things and my appreciation of them has massively increased, massively increased. Um, In fact, I have an episode called The Starbucks Story, which is actually about my first trip to Starbucks after three months of not being able to go anywhere and how that became one of my daily... um, what the, the, I did that every, I went to Starbucks every single day for many, many weeks after that. And it became the thing that I looked forward to every single day because those baristas became my friends, you know, because they would see they would see me every day and they would ask how the foot was and how my progress was, was coming along. And, you know, they just they knew how to make my coffee because I told them enough time. So they'd make it just for me. And it was really beautiful. I think that's really interesting because... What's inherent in that, which I can relate to totally because I I had a similar sort of experience, was that there was much more connection. So in in the case of your getting your coffee and that conversation with the the barista, clearly there was a connection there. And in my own circumstances, I remember, like you used to take, walks all the time and now I nearly always end up speaking to someone on that walk oh really which is something I would never ever have done before and it's that much greater consciousness of much greater presence in what you're doing where you are rather than I think prior to that and I'm sure this is in most people's heads your your mind is somewhere else. You're always living in the future or the past. Yeah. You know, you're never in that present. So you don't ever take the the moment to say to someone who walks past, you know, or oh, how are you or that dog's nice or whatever it is you whatever the conversation might be. And I think I found yeah. it so rewarding yeah. as well because out of those little conversations suddenly you find out something and suddenly the conversation takes a turn we you know, there's something really interesting that comes out of that. So that's really, really nice. Actually. You know, interesting mm. that you found that as well. It sort of forces us into the present in a way, doesn't it? I love what you say about you ask you ask people how they are on their walk, and that's really lovely because it's 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 it's, it's giving it's giving them a sense of warmth and connection and showing them that you genuinely want to know how they are, which is lovely. Well, I think once you open the door to people, they usually come rushing in, as it were. So it's almost Mm. like people are waiting for someone to give them the opportunity, but they don't naturally do it. You know, there's a reserve, isn't there, there, Mm. which people, you know, hold them back. And I think once you open the door and they can feel that you genuinely want to know how they are, 
because how are you can be, you know, we all we all ask that question. And, of yeah, course, that can be. Yeah, yeah you have a nice day. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it seems like for for you and I, you know, asking that question is a genuine. Like, I really want to know how you are. Genuinely, how are you? And I don't want. Yeah, yeah I'm fine. I want a real answer. <laughs> and and just going back to obviously. The experience must still be very real in your in your mind, mm-hmm. um, because obviously you're, you're you're replaying it in, in your creative work. Of course, do you think it's taught you anything that you never appreciated before? Actually, I now know something that I didn't realise before. I'd been through this. Yeah, actually, I've um, been reflecting a lot on um, the career that I had before the accident just over recent months, especially over recent weeks, because the work for the Burgundy book is um, stepping up and we're doing a lot more now to, to, you know, with the hope of releasing it in a few months, hoping all stays well amidst the current lockdown. And it's, it's, it's given me a huge appreciation for how rich and diverse my career was in that sense. And by rich, I mean, all I mean, I don't mean in terms of monetary riches, I mean in the sense that I did so many very interesting things, you know, right from doing shows Amnesty sponsored to working with the, within the NHS to doing shows about the partition to singing at the Festival Hall, singing for the Prime Minister many years ago, and, you know, all sorts of things that people can only dream of. And I, I, although I love them and I was very immersed in my work, I know I took them for granted. Until now, I look back and I go, oh, my gosh. All these experiences are sitting in my heart now that I've got time to reflect. And I now feel so very, very, very grateful for them, you know, because those experiences are some of the artistic experiences that are, are, I suppose, helping to shape the Burgundy book. So what would you, as a result of your experiences, what would you say to other people who are maybe facing some kind of adversity in their life? What, What would your advice to them be? The first thing I would say is go at your own pace. And I know that sounds, could sound like perhaps a hollow statement, but you know what I mean is any profound journey and any kind of trauma, whatever that might be, doesn't have to be one of the magnitudes that I've had, but anything that's profound has a specific tempo and rhythm and and it has its own pace that, can be, and people are feeling this right now in the current lockdown, can be different to the world's pace. And I noticed that certainly after the accident, I felt like I'd been knocked off the merry-go-round. And in fact, of course, I'm still off it. And, you know, that's my, I won't get back on it again for various reasons. Go at your own pace, because only you will know what that pace might be. Only you will know what's right for you. And your experiences of your circumstances will only be yours and only you know how much you can do, how little you can do, whether you want to do nothing and be and sleep for months and months. And that's, that's, that's completely fine because that's what will help you. And I think it's so important. And I had to learn this myself after the accident to listen to myself and not voices of, you know, kind of society or expectations or other people or whatever it might be. Complete, I mean, just completely. I think as we are all programmed to work at, at the pace we believe we should work at. You know, there's the voice in the back of the head which says, well, this is the expectation. Uh, you know, a good person, a strong person, a resilient person would 
would do this. And if you don't do that, yes. then, you know, somehow or other something's wrong. So I completely agree with you. Everybody is different. And if, if your life needs to be at a slow, slower pace, then listen to that. Listen to that. Because in many, in many cases, you can argue that these events, in a strange kind of way, are giving you that very simple message. Yes. Your body is saying, you can't carry on like that. Now, obviously, your body didn't didn't send you under a bus, but but you actually were saying to yourself, interestingly enough, at that moment, I need to stop. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it, it couldn't be more, I don't know what the word is, prophetic something. Profound, <laughs> Profound. yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't personally. I don't believe it was a coincidence. I think something up there was kind of going. If, you, if we don't yes. put you on a bus, you probably won't stop. So I actually now yes. feel very grateful for all of the, the gifts yes. that have come from it. You know, which have in some ways balanced yes. balanced the trauma and the horror. Um, and just to go back to what yes. you were saying about strength, I think it's interesting because I think I think society can not always, but can still have the view that. You, we are after something massive. We need to kind of dust ourselves off and just kind of, you know, launch ourselves back into the, the same Absolutely. situation we were in before yeah. to, to kind of yeah. maintain a sense of normality and go, oh, that was a bit rubbish. But onwards and upwards, I'm strong. Back to normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of think that that isn't possible because life has given you a different, a new normal, you know, which I had to obviously kind of create myself. But I've come to the belief now that there's more strength in me being real and crying because I'm in huge amounts of pain than there is in me shutting myself down and pushing myself back into maybe a role play job or whatever it might be. And then having the trauma come back to bite me in 10 years time because I've not dealt with it now. You know, it was one of the thoughts I had because I can only speak from my own experience after the accident. Now, and, and I suppose now within, you know, within these times is that for me, you know, in addition to the shock and the pain and the trauma and the heartbreak and the loss and, and the whole host of other things that a crisis can bring, I feel like a crisis can also be, if we allow ourselves to entertain that, is a doorway to growth. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the the overwhelming message from all, all the podcasts we've done to date from everybody is that actually that is the that is the gift of adversity if if you let it be the gift 100% if you're faced with saying that it was terrible it's ruined my life it's stopped me doing x y and z then 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 it can be very very negative experience but if you if you accept what's happened and 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 see what where it's pointing you and where you can go and what opportunities it throws up, then it can be a very positive experience, growing experience, as you say. Yeah. Um, I have um, uh, some friends that work in the NHS and um, one of the one of my friends uh, spoke to me after the accident and, um, and said, you know, you know, Renu, I've seen people, you know, in the emergency room having had accidents as serious as yours and so many people don't make it through and she meant she didn't obviously mean um, in terms of the physical she meant they decide not to be here and they end their life and it and it rang in my ears for a very very long time and I just thought to myself 
I can see, I can see that. I can see why. Because, you know, after having a, a massive trauma as, as I did, there were days where I just thought, it's, this, is, this is just too much. It's too much to cope with. But like I said, one of the things that really got me through was, was the artistic and, and, and the near-death experience and, and all the stuff I learned in that space and the growth, you know, because it, when I was in the, the transcendental space, as I call it, I feel like my soul transcended 25 lifetimes um, to the point where I come back. I felt like my inner world had just completely shifted. And it's taken me, it took me the best part of a couple of years for me to integrate those shifts myself because I was discovering them in real time. I really liked your your thought about how it sort of unleashes a, a new type of creativity and obviously in your profession that's that's really interesting. So maybe that's a nice way into talking a bit more about the Burgundy book. I suppose my question is what are you getting out of that that you haven't been able to access before? The accident? That's a lovely question, Simon. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why the Burgundy Book Project is so wholly rewarding is because I think unlike any of the projects that I've worked on before the accident, whilst they were all, you know, very rewarding in their own way, this project is bringing together every single aspect of who I am and every single aspect of my creativity. The acting, the singing, the storytelling, um, the voice work, the musicianship, the, the composing, all of it within one project. And it's obviously autobiographical because it, I'm telling my own story through, through stories, as it were. So it feels very, very rewarding to, to, to work on a project that is both mine and brings together, you know, most, if not all, the facets of my work. I mean, it feels like it's my life's work. Does it feel sense. sort of in, in a funny kind of way cathartic? Yeah, it does. It does, but it very much so, actually. Certainly when I started writing the podcast a year and a half ago, it did feel cathartic. Now, because enough time has passed and we've got enough leverage and support through the artistic world for the project, I feel like I, it feels more like an artistic project now than me doing it for a catharsis, if that makes sense. Because I'm now thinking, you know, as I would when I create any show, um, in terms of the business aspect and, and the reach and, 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 and the artistic components and what works better for the project and, you know, all the things that I would do if I was making the show, which I did in my life. So it feels very much like, it does feel like a catharsis. And at the same time, it also feels like, yeah, I suppose the only way I can describe it is it feels like it's my life's work. It feels like it's pulling together all of the different bits that I feel very whole when I'm making it. Very whole. Fantastic. So just before we finish, tell us a little bit about how people get in contact with you. How will they be able to find out about the Burgundy books? So I'm on uh, Facebook. My name's Renu Aurora. They can find me on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter, same name, and on Instagram. There's also a Burgundy book page called The Burgundy Book with a full stop after it because the Burgundy book is also a name of makeup <laughs> to avoid the so we had to put a distinction full stop after it. <laughs> yes so we have a specific Burgundy book page where we post updates on what we're doing and some of the recordings and we post some of the extracts and the teasers are on there as well 
They can also, if they type in the Burgundy book, they'll also find the Libsyn page, which is the hosting site for the podcasts. So they can hear the teasers there too and make comments and they can follow us that way. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, we'll put all this in the in the show notes so people will be able to, uh, you know, get links to uh, all of that. Thank oh, you great. so much thank you, Simon. for thank you. giving us your story, which oh, is thank you. amazing. And wish you the very best. Oh, bless you. What a lovely conversation. Thank you for having me on. I feel very grateful. Thank you. What's fascinating about Renu's story is how the traumatic events surrounding her near-death experience opened the door to a more spiritual life, one where many of the things that we all take for granted became more meaningful and significant. As we navigate through the challenges of this pandemic, it's a reminder to us all that gratitude for the life we have is an important antidote to feelings of anxiety and loss. You can find contact details for Renu in the show notes, along with the links to her Burgundy Book Project. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.